Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to the New Books and History podcast, part of the New Books Network. My name is Christophe Odinitz. Today I'm speaking with Matthew Gabriel, who is professor and chair of the Department of Religion and Culture at Virginia Tech, where he has been since 2006. He has written The Legend of Charlemagne in the Middle Ages, Power, Faith, and Crusade, and An Empire of Memory, The Legend of Charlemagne in the Middle Ages, which won the Best First Book Award from the Southeastern Medieval Association, and edited a half dozen volumes on medieval history, especially cultural, imperial, and intellectual topics, such as prophecy and the apocalypse. Today we're talking about his recently published Apocalypse and Reform from Late Antiquity to the Middle Ages, an edited volume by 11 historians and and edited by Professor Gabriel and James T. Palmer. Matthew Gabriel, welcome to New Books in History, and please tell us about your book. Sure. Thank you very much for hosting me. It's my, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, the The book very basically kind of arose out of a collaboration that's been happening with myself and um, James Palmer, um, who's at the University of St. Andrews, over a number of years in which um, we were both interested in kind of apocalyptic topics, about the, the cultural manifestations of apocalyptic ideas, particularly in the early Middle Ages, but also extending into the Central and later Middle Ages. Um, and we started to organize a couple of panels um, at uh, professional conferences, and then it kind of morphed into this, this idea in which there seemed to be a lot of scholars working on, um, not kind of um, uh, what we might call a Norman Cohn-esque uh, apocalyptic expectation, um, meaning this, this kind of messianic uh, movement, which is also kind of um, subversive or anti-political in some ways, um, but kind of as a apocalypticism as a mainstream uh, cultural force in the Middle Ages. And um, we brought together a, a bunch of different scholars who thought that it would be very interesting to examine their particular topics and then kind of tie them together. As we, um, as we talk about in the introduction to the book, it's really even more broadly themed around the idea of reform, is that uh, apocalypse and reform are often thought of as um, juxt- uh, juxtaposed or paradoxical to, to place them together, but really they're they're in some ways two sides of the same cor- coin. Reform tends to look backwards. We think of apocalypse as looking forwards, but in the medieval context, in the medieval European context, it's oftentimes the case in which you look backwards in order to look forwards, that you need to return to something that has been lost, a, a pristine cultural or intellectual or religious state that needs to be um, recaptured in order for sacred time to advance, in order for the apocalypse ultimately to come. That's really interesting, the, the going forward by going back, and uh, especially in in these, the... The, the monastic thinkers that you look at, um, mm. Odo of Cluny or, or Heimel of Auxerre or um, Bernard of Angers, uh, they talk about sort of a decline of, of, of empire since Charlemagne. And I wonder if that is, uh, if that is based on, on Carolingian memory or if it goes all the way to the Roman Empire. I, I know, for example, uh, um, Gregory of Tours likes to call himself a, a Romanus. Um, wh- what is it yeah. that they think they've lost? What do they sort of remember? What do they imagine? Um, what What is the world that they you know that they have nostalgia for? And what What do they yeah. think is happening? 
Yeah, no, that's 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 a really great question because I mean it, it tends to be um, when you look at these thinkers, especially if you kind of stretch them out over the course of the early and central Middle Ages, it tends to be very repetitive, and I think that's and that's kind of what I argue in my essay in the volume, and also I'm exploring in in, in my next book project is this this idea of um, uh, the pattern of sacred time is recursive, is that. Um, it just happens again and again, and I think that's that's embedded in um, the way the medievals, uh, the medieval Christians, Latin Christians, um, understood the kind of the pattern of sacred history as it was laid out in the Bible, um, as they understood it, pulling from the exegesis of people like Jerome and Augustine, and then through the Carolingians, as you mentioned, um, Haimo Voxer, Robinus Maurus, um, people like that, is that uh, there, there's, if you look at kind of the kingdom of Israel and how that works, um, uh, or how kind of the how how political history works within the kingdom of Israel, it's that there's a, there's an ascent. You know, the the chosen people do well. Um, God rewards them, and then there's some sort of sin or some sort of offense against God. He punishes them. There's a decline. Um, an external invader comes in, and then the cycle repeats. As they repent, God returns his favor. They reclaim, um, you know, the Holy Land, etc. And I think that's kind of what's going on in these 11th century particular texts that I'm looking at, Odo of Cluny, Bernard Vanger, um, Adso of Montier and Dare, um, Adamar of Chabon, and other monastic thinkers, is that they understand their period as one of decline. And they, they're they looking for the evidence that supports that kind of presupposed uh, conclusion in which uh, we've lost something, this golden age of the Franks during the time of Charlemagne, during the Carolingians, and then necessarily what follows after that is the decline and the loss of faith and the sin of the people, of uh, the new chosen people, in which needs to be reclaimed. And so they're calling out for reform. They're calling out for repentance in order to return, again, kind of looking backwards towards God's favor in order to advance the timeline. What's particularly interesting about these 11th century thinkers, though, is that they think this might be the last time. And I think mm-hmm. that's why in Bernard and Adamar and um, Ralph Babert, which I also talk about, there's all these hints of kind of the Antichrist or the end of time being just on the horizon. There's, there's rumors abounding and things like that. And that's led to a vigorous debate in historiography about whether these guys actually thought that, you know, the end of the world was coming. And I don't think it's as simple as that. And I think when you put it in its cultural context, it's that they're, they're, they're savvy enough thinkers to understand that they can know neither the time nor the hour, um, you know, the famous biblical injunction, but they can hint at it. They can think that they can understand God's will and by understanding the path of sacred time. And that seems to be what they're doing in the, in the text that they're producing. Do you think that um, do you, do you think that they have a, a real case here that things were better during Charlemagne, or do you think they're reading or they're they're putting their own lives onto a received text, onto a pattern that they recognize from from the Old Testament, especially? Or was there something special about that early Carolingian period, one that I think sometimes we think of as sort of ragtag and poor and itinerant mm-hmm. king, sure. almost a warlord going around, or was there really something glorious? that they know about? <laughs> I think that the answer to that kind of depends on whether you ask a Carolingianist or an, um, uh, uh, an 11th century historian, um, which I think is, is better. Um, so I think it's a little both. I mean, you know, to be, be kind of clear, though, though I will admit that's kind of the million dollar question, um, you know, within all this is that, um, you know, was there something lost or is this kind of, again, like you said, kind of a narrative imposition um, onto the text in order to create um, a, um, uh, a particular impression. Um, and again, 
my, my initial kind of reaction to that is that I, I, I do think it is kind of both. I think there's, there's an unmistakable um, kind of cultural renaissance that occurs, and I hate using that word, but it, it really does seem apt, mm-hmm. a renaissance um, in the ninth century, um, in the late eighth and ninth century, in which you do have this court school, you have these magnificent um, pieces of art that are produced, um, you have architecture, uh, monasteries that are rebuilt, uh, palaces, etc., etc., etc. Um, a real kind of uh, cross-cultural communication that's enabled by um, this political unity of Charlemagne and Louis the Pious's empire, or, or at least this cultural continuity of the Franks. At the same time, in the 11th century, um, you know, life really isn't bad at these major monasteries. I mean, at a local level, there certainly is seems to be more. Um, um, uh, there seems to be more uh, political dissension and, and kind of local warfare, but I don't know how uncommon that actually was in earlier centuries. Um, and certainly I think it would be a difficult um, argument to make that in the 11th century, for example, things are measurably worse than they were in the early 10th or even the very late 9th century. Um, but, you know, that kind of complexity doesn't fit within the story that the, the sources themselves are trying to tell. Um and I think we've been um, a little bit too enamored about that that coherent narrative um, that these sources are are producing to think about okay, well, what's the actual lived experience on the ground, which I think complicates that narrative a little bit more than we might like to admit. I think I think that makes perfect sense. I, often we don't know, we can't appreciate what we really have, and often the fish doesn't know it's wet, and that sort of thing. And I, I it's it's. Um, it's delightful to me that you don't like to use the word renaissance because I, I feel that way, you know, whenever we teach, we're not allowed to say dark ages or feudalism. That's such a, <laughs> but, but I, I always like uh, Chris Wickham's phrase. It's a radical material simplification. That, yeah. Like, yeah. It's true. There's less stuff and there's, you know, less roads and less bridges. And uh, it, it's, um, I don't know, it takes someone like Chris Dyer to dig into pits and say like, look, mm-hmm. here's the nutrition. I counted the fish bones. Nutrition is better. And there's yeah. no way somebody could, could appreciate that. So um, interesting that their story, though, is is this not only this uh, what, you, what you called a recursive kingdom of Israel, mm-hmm. and I get, and it also makes sense to me as you speak about Charlemagne that um, that is a great king. So clearly he had the favor of God, and he was a Roman emperor, and he was crowned, and everybody saw it. Yeah. Um, I, so I'm wondering how they went. I, I guess the, that absence has led to this, and so why this time? And, and you, you, you write, uh, yeah. you write, maybe this time, maybe this time. What, what is, what is in the, um, the Antichristo of Adso of Montier and uh, what is it? What, why this time? And what are those? What do you think? Yeah. So, so I think that the, the kind of the, the key moment here, and this is, this is a little bit of a simple simplification, but I think the key moment in this narrative is, is the battle of Fontenoy. Um, right with the breakdown of political order, the the wars of uh, Charlemagne's grandsons, Louis the Pious's sons, where Franks actually kill other Franks, the chosen people war with one another, and that 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 kind of intellectually cracks um, this facade. You know, both during the period, and we have some some you know Engelbert's um, famous uh, poem about the Battle of Fontenoy, uh, Nithard. Um, uh, Historiarum, which uh, which is written just shortly after that, again kind of emphasizes the importance of Fontenoy. But I think more generally, kind of this the the idea that the empire is actually formally gone. And what's super super interesting about that that I think that the 11th century people are picking up on, and late 10th and 11th century people are picking up on, is that if you map um, uh, kings 
from the Carolingians back onto um, uh, biblical Israel, it seems to work, right? You have Charlemagne as David, then you have Louis the Pious as Solomon, and then what happens after Solomon? You have Roboam, uh, sorry, you have Ro, um, Roboam, Roboam, yes. You have Roboam, who allows, who's Solomon's son, who allows the kingdom of Israel to splinter. And the kingdom of Israel breaks into, into multiple parts. And that's what seems to happen with the Frankish Empire. So it seems like this recursive pattern is playing out again. What these 11th century guys are thinking about, and what I talk about again in the essay, in which I kind of link this idea to kind of uh, Southern American lost causism after the American Civil War, is that we can return. If we repent, we know the mistakes we've made. And so in the, that Faulkner quote, which, which you just used, um, we can we can we can avoid those mistakes this time. We know what's caused that breakdown in civil society, both in, in ancient Israel and in the Franks. And this time, maybe this time, we won't repeat them, and God will um, allow us to continue that ascent, which will ultimately lead to um, the the day of tribulation, the last judgment, and eventually eternal salvation. Uh, are Vikings part of it? Are the are the horsemen of the apocalypse destroying things and burning sure. things down, or is that is that peripheral? And I just imagine. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's absolutely part of it. And um, uh, James uh, Palmer, my other my my collaborator here, my co-editor, um, his book, um, his wonderful book on uh, called "The Apocalypse in the Early Middle Ages," which was published by Cambridge um, a little while ago, a few years ago. Um, he has a whole section on this, um, you know, pulling on other scholars as well, in which um, external forces, especially polytheistic ones, or, or as the Christians would say, pagan ones, become the agents of God's will, right? Their punishment upon the chosen people for their sins, in the same way that, um, you know, the Assyrians or the Babylonians were for ancient Israel, the Vikings, the Avars, the Vandals, the, the Muslims, etc., 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 become the agents of God's will. Um, unwitting agents of God's will, but but sent to punish um, the Christians, to teach them a lesson, to push them back to repentance. Um, and then you see that narrative in, in other stuff that I've written um, in, in one of my first monographs. Um, you see that same kind of narrative playing out, for example, in, the, in the, the First Crusade, right? And I think that's that's part of the reason why you see no references to Islam in the narratives in the 12th century chronicles of the First Crusade, but they're re- referenced in these classical and biblical terms because they're playing on this idea that this has happened before and it's happening happening now again. And I think that continues into the 16th century with the Ottomans and, and uh, oh, yeah. it never goes away, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so, okay, the actual apocalypse, though, um, uh, in your or, uh, J. J. Rubenstein in, in the afterward points out that it's very different from our sort of nuclear holocaust, mm-hmm. that uh, it is not uh, heard uh, with abject terror, but with what he calls appreciative shivers. And it's something that is uh, something that might not be, uh, an, uh, you know, annihilation of everything, but uh, an opportunity. And can you yeah. talk about what is a medieval apocalypse? Or yeah, maybe sure. you can also tell us about apocalypse versus millenarium versus eschatology, which you, you make that point in the introduction. Yeah, yeah. No, um, uh, Jay, I mean, just such a such a wonderfully evocative phrase, isn't it? Um, appreciative shivers. Um, and I think I think the idea of it, they're getting at is that in the medieval idea of apocalypse, it's not it's not an ending. Like we tend to think of the apocalypse like you, um, like 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 Jay uh, Jay talks about. We tend to think of the apocalypse like Jay talked about, and like you mentioned, as kind of a nuclear holocaust, right, in which everything is kind of wiped out. Um, but really, I think in the medieval sense, um, and I think you actually see this in some kind of like uh, post-apocalyptic uh, sci-fi narratives in in in, mo- in the modern world, is as is simply as transformative, is that things will be fundamentally different after. 
In the medieval case, it means that, um, and you mentioned those terms, in a millenarian sense, is that there'll be a millennium, a thousand years of peace and prosperity on earth immediately afterwards. And then the last judgment will occur, the final tribulations, and then this, the you know, separating of the sheep and the goats. Um, the other ultimate transform, uh, if, if people aren't uh, millenarists, is that the last judgment will, will occur very shortly after that. And then eternity, which is the real idea, right, in the Christian worldview, this life on earth is very short and very transient compared to eternity. The last judgment will occur and then you'll spend your eternity in heaven. So it's not something necessarily, if you think you're on the right side of history, um, it's not necessarily something to be um, terrified of. Though, you know, you're never entirely probably sure if you're going to get into heaven or not. And you're always a little bit worried about that. Um, but it is, it, it's not kind of, again, it's not that this, this kind of wiping out of everything, the end of everything. It's just the beginning of something different. Uh, okay. Uh, well, I, I'd, I'd love to follow up uh, with what you're saying here and talk a bit about the apop- apocalypse in, in um, popular culture. A very superficial mm. Google search of your name reveals that two years ago you introduced Mad Max Victory Road to a movie theater for religion and cultural <laughs> film studies. And um, I, I thought that was a great movie. And I've always enjoyed these Hollywood uh, post-apocalyptic kind of fantasies like Planet of the Apes yeah. or Logan's Run or The Postman or um, I-, I Legend or I Am Legend or stories that invite us to wonder like, what if, or what would I do in that world? Mm-hmm. And what do you think these tell us about ourselves? Because, you know, it's easy to say, oh, those, those wacky medieval monks a hundred, a thousand years ago, but um, I, to quote, yeah. uh, or to misquote an author, ESO Martin, what are we talking about when we talk about the apocalypse? We, I mean, we <laughs> in, 20, in 2018. Yeah. No, no. And this is, this is a great question. I mean, I'm preparing, I've taught this before and I'm actually teaching it um, uh, in the fall of next year is a course on apocalypse, uh, apocalypse, right? And we talk about zombie movies and we talk about modern sci-fi and we talk about medieval stuff and we talk about ancient stuff as well. Um, It's kind of a a very quick tour of all these ideas. And that's the kind of core question, which I want to leave people with. And, And I think that's really, you know, so great. You're driving right at the core of what's going on, which is, you know, what are we saying about ourselves in these issues? Um, you know, when we talk about the end, the types of ends that, um, that occur, you know, in most zombie movies, for example, right? Like society breaks down, you know, the ultimate story of the walking dead, for example, or any of these these zombie apocalypses is that the dead are, are much less dangerous than the other living that, you know, humans are the ultimate threat to other humans. And there's this kind of, um, whether they're, they're, they're transformed into zombies, but, you know, the other civilizations that have to compete for resources and it becomes kind of this Hobbesian um, uh, parable, right? There's another wonderful novel, which I, la- I love to teach with. It's called Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, um, which, again, is set after it, it kind of flips back and forth, but it's primarily set after this kind of flu ravages the earth. And then uh, 10 or 20 years later, I can't remember, society kind of re- starts to rebuild itself. And people remember what it was like before, but society's ultimately transformed. You know, technology is, is very scarce and stuff like that. But it posits a very different idea of um, what post-apocalyptic life would be like in that it follows a traveling Shakespeare company around. Like, this is, this is what's important to them, and they perform in these various communities. And so, you know, what uh, Mendel, I think, is trying to say there is that, you know, art and culture matter. People won't... Um, uh, abandon that. Whereas, you know, you, you put that nicely next to something like, again, The Walking Dead, like it's just survival, right? It's just, just kind of raw survival in this post-apocalyptic world. And so those are two competing ideas, not necessarily of what the apocalypse is going to be like or what's going to happen after, but what we think society is really about. 
um, you know, what the purpose of civilization is. And that's, I think, what apocalypse allows us to do. We're talking about the apocalypse is to say something about our own time, but to 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 chronologically make it distant. So it makes it a little bit safer to discuss these things, both intellectually and in some cases, kind of politically and culturally. I, I'm going to read that book now. Uh, I it's also the, um, <laughs> You should. Everybody I, should read that book. Yeah, and then uh, David Brin has a, a postman one where where it was later a Kevin Costner movie, and he's also yeah, a, a traveling uh-huh. actor. He's also a he's also like a one man Shakespeare company who goes around from armed camp to armed camp trying to you know scrounge for um, a little bit of sustenance and perform these plays. Which is, I mean, I think part of it is that it's the memory of the civilization lost that these people are peddling and saying like, hey, I do remember something is better. It, um, but what's different is there's no God in our post-apocalyptic fantasies, is there? It's just something that people did to themselves. And now the government's gone. What are we going to – how are we going to rebuild it or not, right? Or how are we going to – Yep. So yep. that – well, even, that even in those hybrid things – sorry, go ahead. Because um, I, I was just going to say like – yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. even in those hybrid situations in which you do have kind of a deity, and I'm thinking of Stephen King's The Stand, for example, hmm. right, in which there, there's something supernatural kind of going on. Maybe it's God, maybe it's not, maybe it's the devil is, is at work. You know, it's exactly what you said, though. It's that it's ultimately up to the people. Like, it's not that there's going to be any sort of supernatural intervention in this this particular moment. It's really up to the people to decide how things are going to happen. Well, so we have, I mean, I guess we've taken, taken, agency onto us culturally that we we believe that we can fix this and we can fix that and we can have a nuclear war or avoid one or have you know the, the melting of the ice caps or avoid it but do you mm-hmm. think medieval people had any feeling like that or no this is just it's going to happen because it is written in the scriptures yeah. and so get ready and repent or is there something is there a political agency in it or is it or or are they the same and i'm missing it no no that's that's a really interesting question you know because i think it changes um, in the earlier conceptions, probably up until around the year 1000 or so, and this is just a rough estimate, um, human agency, really, well, there's no human agency, right? Is that the, the human participation in the, the events of the apocalypse or the events of the end, or really the events of sacred time more generally, are, are, is very passive. Like there's nothing we can do as human beings on this earth to change the course of history because it's all up to God is that God will decide, you know, what time this thing happens. It will be kind of uh, regardless of what's going on. We can, we can read the signs in the world to see if things are getting worse, but oftentimes it's only retrospective. We can only tell that things are worse now than they were before, after everything has happened. What starts to happen in the 11th century, and, then, and I have an article about this, um, which kind of feeds into this idea, is um, when I talk about Urban II in the First Crusade, is that in the 11th century, and I see you see the beginnings of this um, with the, the guys I'm talking about in the essay in the book, is that humans have a part to play, is that uh, it, it's really up to the chosen people to choose, to make this decision, to repent, to ask for God's forgiveness. It gives them a sense of, of something to do. And if they do that thing, then God will intervene. So it absolutely requires humans to do something, but ultimately um, the the actual actions themselves, uh, the things that will move sacred time forward um, or not, are up to God. Does that mean that if you repent, and if, if enough people repent, or do all have people have to repent, that the that this millenarian, um, I think you know, thing to be longed for will come faster, or that it will be postponed, or that it's going to happen the way it's going to happen, but you are going to be saved personally, and you know how 
how does the repentance work in that? Where's the, where's the, where's the agency or will, or how should we think about it? Yeah. And I think it's, um, I think it's wrong to think of kind of personal, um, uh, personal activity as kind of mattering in any kind of substantive way. Um, you know, Medieval Christianity is much more pre-modern Christianity generally, and again, this is this is again this is a, a, an overgeneralization. Is that the way that I see it? Is is much more about collective action. Um, so when I say that we need to repent, um, what I mean is that, for example, and this is this is a, a much easier example to kind of conceptualize is that we Christians need to retake Jerusalem from the Muslims. Like that's a big thing that no individual can kind of accomplish on their own, but it requires kind of the Franks with quotes around it as a people to do this, this thing. Um, we need to refound monasteries. We need to, um, you know, make sure that monks are doing the right thing. We need to alter um, the structures of aristocratic life. So they're not killing each other so much, um, you know, with the peace of God um, and things like that. It's certainly not everybody, um, but it's also, that's also a right problem is that, um, you know, you can't get everybody to do everything that you want them to do. And there's always going to be a nice excuse if something doesn't work out because, um, you know, again, kind of looking at the biblical examples, like one sin from the army of Joshua led to a plague on the Israelites that they needed to correct, right? One person's individual actions. And so, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a model that explains almost anything, right? Is that you need collective action. Most people can do it, but if it doesn't work out, you've done something wrong that needs to be corrected internally. And so it just becomes this, this kind of eternally recurring cycle. I see. Uh, well, in addition to all this, in addition to speaking about the, the, uh, um, a thousand years ago and the fantasies of the future, you also talk, uh, a bit about, uh, the present day and, and our political situation. And I see that earlier this year, you spoke at Leeds about the Crusades and white supremacy in the classroom. And I see that next mm. month you'll be speaking at the American Historical, uh, American, American Historical Association annual meeting in Chicago about nostalgia and narrative after Charlottesville and comparing myths and origins in the American Civil War. And both of these topics yeah. are of su supreme political interest uh, that command the attention of any American following the news these last couple of years and, and perhaps doubly so for someone in Virginia. So what would you tell us ab about these topics and what, what, uh, what does medieval religion and culture have to say about the present day uh, racialized or at least racialized in our popular media United States that we inhabit? Yeah. Well, I think that, um, you know, and there's, there's been a lot of political work that's really interesting political work about um, the issue of nostalgia in modern culture. And I think that that's kind of what um, sparked my interest is because, again, uh, you know, with this this book is, uh, you know, thinking about apocalypse and reform, it's, it's about nostalgia and apocalypse, too, because reform is about um, an idealized version of the past, which isn't necessarily true, but, um, you know, has kind of a truth value to it um, nonetheless. And I think you saw that, and I was really struck by that, for example, in um, the events of uh, Charlottesville in August of 2017, um, when you had um, all these uh, white supremacists descend on um, on the city around the statue of Robert E. Lee, you know, this, this kind of icon of the Confederate um, South, of the Confederacy. And then many of these these people, not, not, not all of them, but many of them were carrying shields, for example, that said Deus Volt on it. They were um, white shields with red crosses on them with, with the words Deus Volt, which is Latin for God's wills it, um, and oftentimes conf carrying Confederate battle flags at the same time. I mean, there's some famous pictures um, showing this. 
is um, from the event that are, that are showing this. And it's that juxtaposition which really struck me is which these two moments, um, both the Confederate um, South and the pre, sorry, the, pre, the antebellum South, American South and the, the Middle Ages, specifically around the Crusades, is about kind of, are kind of these icons, these kind of er moments, uh, these moments of origin for these white supremacist ideas, um, in which they're, they're these historical points that they can kind of latch onto, in which they're imagined ideas of what life was like in those two places as kind of a white culture, defend, quote unquote, defending itself against foreign invaders. The Muslims or the Yankees um, were really, were really formative to their understanding of themselves in their, in their own day. And so, for example, for the the the, um, the session that we're organizing uh, next month in in um, at the American Historical Association, is the idea is to bring together medievalists and Americanists and actually talk about like, okay, so what what is it about these moments that allow us to have a cross disciplinary and a cross kind of a, a, a field specific conversation? And and because both of these moments are being deployed in in modern politics. Right. You Google search the word medieval in the news and you find a whole lot of stuff or the Crusades. You find a whole lot of stuff. You Google search, you know, Robert E. Lee and, um, you know, the Silent Sam controversy that's going on at University of North Carolina. Exact same conversations that were going on um, both in Charlottesville and afterwards among historians. I, I don't know that controversy. What is what's Silent Sam? Oh, Silent Sam. Um, Silent Sam is a statue. Uh, that's the name of the statue of a Confederate, um, a Confederate memorial that sits right in the middle of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill um, campus. Um, it was toppled. It was pulled down um, by students um, a, f- a few months ago. And then there was just a decision by the UNC, um, I think it's called the Board of Regents, um, to decide what to do with it. And they're, they're not putting it back up in its place, but they're going to put it in an interpretive center um, and um, to, to give it kind of historical context, because it wasn't erected as most, um, it wasn't erected as the same with uh, most Confederate monuments right after the war, but early in the 20th century. And specifically at the kind of the height of the Jim Crow South as a monument to white supremacy. Oh, I see. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and it's just surreal to hear about the people with uh, Dave's Volt on the shield and the <laughs> Confederate uh, battle flag at the same time. Um, I, I can ima- I understand why the Confederate, you know, the lost cause, the, uh, the, of the, the war of Northern aggression sort of plays, plays mm. a part in this memory of, Oh, everything was great. And then along came, you know, these Yankees and imposed all these things. I can understand that, but how on earth does, this, does the Crusades, uh, what yeah. is uh, what is the imagery there? Is it the like the flower of Christian virtue and militancy, or what? Yeah. How, well, how it come? plays on actually a lot of the. Sorry, I, I was just going to say it plays on a lot of the imagery that um, that you see in, for example, um, the 12th century chronicles themselves, in the sense that the Crusades were a quote unquote defensive war against Islamic aggression. That if it were not for the First Crusade, the Muslims would have been, you know, in Paris within a couple of years, and you know, all Europe would have been um, um, would have been converted by force. Um, and so that's the kind of narrative is that this this kind of ideal of white Christian chivalry that uh, defends against a foreign invader. Um, what I think this actually reveals in that you start to see this in the American context is the connection between these far right groups in the U.S. and in Europe as well. Um, both in Eastern Europe and Western Europe as well. Um, so, for example, you know, far right groups in um, France will fly the Confederate flag, um, and in the same way, in the same weird sense that that makes sense, 
that um, American groups would would be talking about Deus Volt and, and kind of Crusader talk. I see, and it doesn't matter that you know the, uh, they're I don't know that the uh, the clan is virulently anti-Catholic. Uh, you know, like that doesn't matter. That just all goes away because it's still a knight with a cross and. Uh, because also the, the I always understood a medieval idea of crusade is more of an armed pilgrimage than any kind of territorial defense that you're you're really going to the holy land and and you're you know you're doing this penitent act that involves making war but it's not it doesn't have any sort of uh, I don't know almost no national or territorial view of hmm, I'm not sure yeah, where the question is you know, going <laughs> you know to be crude nostalgia is a hell of a drug um, yeah, you know you can create these ideas about the past that um, are kept tethered in some kind of esoteric way to the way that historians, for example, understand the past or the way the past actually might've been. Um, but you can construct modern political narratives out of them anytime you want. Um, I think a lot of what happens in these cases among far right groups is that they read, um, and I don't know exactly what they're reading, you know, but they read kind of popular narratives about the crusades, which emphasize the military aspect and don't mm-hmm. deal, dwell with dwell on the intellectual and the cultural context of them in which it, it is much more nuanced because it's about armed pilgrimage and things like that. Um, but, you know, if you just focus on kind of the military exploits is that, you know, a bunch of kind of brave young men um, gave up everything to travel 2000 miles and suffer horribly in defense of God and country, then, I mean, that's, that's a powerful narrative that you can, you can do something with. Okay. That makes perfect sense. And I think my question was a little credulous. Yes. Then I can see we do that all the time as we borrow from the past for the political needs of the present. My, I'd like to ask you before uh, we run out of time is um, you joined Virginia tech in 2006 and your first semester was the time of the uh, Virginia tech um, shooting and, and massacre. And would you mm-hmm. say how, how, you know, present day violence and often the senseless or uh, desperate tone of our violence has influenced your scholarship and your thinking about the past and the present? Yeah, no, I, I thought, um, yeah, that, that's a great question. It's a, it's a, it's a very fair question. And I think it really has influenced, you know, the way that I've approached um, my topics and, um, you know, some might say for good and some might not say for not great, um, is that it attuned me a lot more to the present resonances of the issues that I'm studying, even though they're, you know, set ostensibly a thousand, thousand plus years ago. Um, you know, in, in one of the articles that I've published um, in the Medieval Journal, I think it was in 2016, um, it's about, it's called like Debating Crusade in uh, Contemporary America. It talks about kind of the rhetoric of the Iraq War and then um, also the manifesto that the Virginia Tech shooter um, published um, after, after his shootings. And you know, what I try to show there is that they're not the exact same, but they play on these tropes, which would be very familiar to a 12th century medieval audience. Um, this rhetoric of violence, which is um, ultimately Christian in some really interesting ways and in really problematic ways, um, you know, can, you know, ideas can make people do things. And sometimes they're good things and sometimes they're not good things. And I think we need to, we need to confront that. And so that's, that's kind of been at the heart of what I've been trying to do. And, um, you know, I think you see that in, in the work that James and I uh, put together in this, this, this contemporary volume. Uh, and I think part of the medieval problem was that violence was visited on uh, fellow Christians and neighbors. And, 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 and so, the solution there was, and please correct me if I'm oversimplifying, was to um, export it and have this peace of God or truce of God and say, okay, how about a crusade? Or how about we fight only in, in this context or over there or that sort of thing? 
Um, what is to be done about violence today, uh, yeah. civic violence? <laughs> well, I, I wish I had answered that, um, but but I think the 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 important part within you know what you mentioned is that it's not always violence against external groups so much as violence against groups that are perceived as external. So what that means is that even within an intra-Christian uh, violence, for example, in the 11th century, even in the 9th century, is that there's a lot of intellectual work that goes into making sure that the people who are fighting think that they're different from one another. And that's not necessarily always kind of objectively the case, but it is um, kind of a cultural and intellectual phenomenon that, that that's happening. And that's honestly kind of the same thing I think that's going on, for example, in the Crusades in the 11th and 12th and 13th centuries, is that it's a perception of a, a group that they don't really know too much about. Medieval Europeans don't really know too much about. We know them as the Mus as Muslims. Um, but, you know, that's why there's this weird kind of a variated language about them being pagans and polytheists and uh, Parthians and, um, you know, uh, Seleucids and blah, 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 et cetera. Um, because they don't really know what's going on, but it is important that they're, they're trying to fill it, uh, uh, put them into kind of a category in which they need to be resisted um, uh, violently. And I think that that's something that we can be very attentive to and should be very attentive to in today's world is the language of othering and specifically when it plays on tropes that lead to a necessary physical reaction to um, that portrayal. That's a, that's a really good uh, admonition. And um, I think it's a great place to stop my questions. Would you tell us a little bit about what you're going to do next? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm working on a couple different projects. Um, the one that I'm, I'm focused on, at least the most right now, is, is another monograph, another book, um, which is is about this kind of apocalyptic transformation, this transformation in cultural intellectual understanding of sacred time, which I think starts to happen in the 11th century and then kind of bears full fruit um, in the 12th. And so it's kind of a much longer view of kind of where this all starts, kind of the process of biblical commentaries, how these ideas of sacred time get interpreted, melded into historical work, um, and then transformed in the 11th century to become something that we think of as kind of, again, this, this terrible term um, of the 12th century Renaissance. That sounds very exciting. And I hope when you finish it that uh, I can talk with you a second time. I would be delighted. Well, thank you very much, Matthew Gabriel, for, for your time this morning. And have a, have a wonderful uh, winter break and a great time at the American Historical Association in January. Great. Thank you so much for talking. <laughs>